Welcome to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. I'm your host, Kelvin. Today, we have a very special guest, all the way in Spain, Daniel Schwarzman. He's an investor and the founder of Shortman Studios, a podcast production and editing company. He co-hosts The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast which I believe currently has over 85,000 downloads on Podbean. He previously worked at Seeking Alpha for nearly eight years as director of the Marketplace subscription platform and previously as creator of the site's podcast program and managing editor of Seeking Alpha Pro. He began investing in 2011 and is a humble investor who made plenty of mistakes and a few good investments in the decades since, focused mostly on a value style of investing. Daniel, thank you for joining the show all the way in Spain. Hope you're having a great start to the new year. We're all very privileged to have you here. There's a lot to discuss today as we're curious to know your investing philosophy and I can't wait to get your thoughts on one of the companies that you and I have a position in, Dropbox, as well as your biggest learnings in stock market investing. So let's kick off with your intro. I'm sure our listeners would like to hear more about your background and your podcast. Sure. Thanks so much, Calvin. It's really great to be here. And one of the nice things about current environment that we can meet from across the world. I, as a kid, I was aware of the stock market. I remember playing games with mutual funds in middle school, I think. I was grew up in the Boston area, so you have lots of famous mutual fund shops like Fidelity, et cetera. But wasn't a huge, never really was like crazy about, didn't have the bug to go do it myself. I was good with numbers, always good at basic, you know, computation and card games, for example, I understood really well, but never, never was a fanatic about investing. I majored in econ in college, but it was the most interesting thing to me that seemed to have hard, hard skills attached to it, but it wasn't necessarily to go into the market. And then I graduated just in 2007, ultimately. So right before the financial crisis, I didn't have anything in the market. I was sort of like vaguely aware. Of, I was obviously aware of the crisis, but vaguely aware of the market and how much it had sold off. And that seemed to be risky to me. A couple of years, I met my now wife in 2008 as well. And as I got to know her family, her father has been a longtime investor. Her grandfather was a longtime investor. And neither, both of them very intelligent men, but neither one of them went to college. And so that was something to me like, okay, if these guys can figure it out, this, this may be more approachable. And I had, for different reasons, I had some money to invest. And so in 2011, I just thought now would be a good time. I was, we were sort of in between places in our life we, my wife is an international teacher, so we've mostly lived outside of the U.S. And that year, we were kind of in the U.S. more or less for the year. And so I just kind of set up a TD Ameritrade account and just started looking at, okay, they send you like a big pamphlet of S&P Cap 500 or Capital IQ five-star stocks. And I looked at that and Apple was there and just a, you know, a bunch of, I think I made a brief investment in Mitsubishi Bank. Uh, MUFJ, I think. And so I was just, I tried that. And, and I actually, of all people, I read a book by Jim Cramer, Mad Money. It was, you know, fairly basic and talked about PE ratios and that sort of thing. And I just started to dig into it from there. And so I started making investments. Some of them, I, I invested in Apple on the logic that the iPad 2 would give the stock a boost, for example, which, you know, investing in Apple has almost always worked in the past decade. So nothing special there. But 
yeah, so I just got into it. I got a feel for it. And then I started reading online and just digging through. I was mostly going through the Wall Street Journal, maybe a little bit of Yahoo Finance. And somehow I stumbled on Seeking Alpha, which was just for me at the time. And I, you know, we can talk about it later. I still think it's a great resource, but I just thought it was awesome because there was opinion pieces on almost every stock you could imagine. And so you really get a sense of, all right, what is the story? What do people think? Then you get the transcripts. So I just really started digging in from there. And that's where I just, I started learning. I started writing for the site, not because I thought I was a great investor, but because I thought I was a decent writer. And I did a decent enough job. Uh, you know, my picks were lucky enough to be 2012 was a good time to invest. So, but the editors liked me and they ended up posting a job. And I applied for that and I got that job. And it was specifically covering the pro product, which was meant to be geared towards investment and professionals, which exposed me to a lot of better investors, both as our readers and as our writers. And that, and just my understanding of the markets improved from there, even though I had less time to actually think about my own investments. So that's really the background. I was at Seeking Alpha for, like you said, almost eight years. And then last year in 2020, I decided it was time to kind of do something on my own. And part of that is I've had more time to work on my investing, whether or not it's improving. But uh, yeah, so that's the sort of short story of my investing background. You know, you've come a long way starting from not knowing anything about you know, investing to someone who is very seasoned or has the opportunity to interview with so many different speakers. I was just curious, how did working at Seeking Alpha as well as being a host of an investment podcast help you become a much more informed investor or help you obtain a better understanding of how financial markets work? So, and I, I you had asked earlier about the podcast, so I'll hit on that here. Working at Seeking Alpha, the two things it did is, on the one hand, I wasn't necessarily publishing my own ideas, right? And so there was a bit of, I was less at risk in that sense, but at the same time, we were publishing specifically for a pro product. And so you had to, Seeking Alpha has historically been built on crowdsourcing and on sort of the authors know more than we do is our, is our fundamental presumption, right? We, presumably they have time to work on whatever stock that we don't. And so let's take them at their word that they're sort of understanding it. and. With Pro, we had to do some quality screening. And I think we we were learning as we went and we got better over time. But like I remember one time we published an article on a given stock and it, it turned out a, like a comment came in that morning that, no, actually, this was bought out already. Like, what are you doing? And so we, like, we you kind of learn, that's a little embarrassing, but you kind of learn just what to check, what to do. We had to field disputes, for example. And so you'd get a dispute a lot of them would come in against short ideas because if a short idea was saying something bad about the company, people would get very upset and the company would protest and you would have to get very legalistic. Well, that's an opinion or this is supported here or okay, that does need to come down because you don't have support, whatever. Just from the perspective of learning how to think through the details, that was really useful. So things like that just put you into practice and you're exposed to ideas. But then I think even more, being at Seeking Alpha, you're seeing how comment streams play out. You're seeing how ideas play out. And you kind of get a sense of, all right, this is the really good stuff. And this is the stuff that is a little bit louder or is a little bit off the mark. 
So I think that's not that I always apply it properly, but I think that's what I really saw was just you get you're essentially in and the great thing about the stock market is you can say what you say. If you have a position, it's either going to work or it's not. And it might still work for the wrong reasons or not work for the whatever. Like it's not always process and outcome, but you can sort of see that in real time in a lot more numbers than you would see from your own investing. And so I think that's really what I learned. And then ironically, from what I just said about not being in the spotlight, what was good about the podcast, we started at Seeking Alpha with a podcast called Behind the Idea, which I did with another investor. And in that case, it was us talking about articles on Seeking Alpha and trying to understand what made them work. And then again, we would sort of, at the end of the year, we would say, all right, which ideas actually played out? And we occasionally, there would be ideas that I would end up investing in based on that. And we did a couple of our own ideas over the course of the, we did a hundred episodes. That put us, I think it was good for readers because they got to see, oh, somebody at the company has an opinion. I think it was nice for them to be able to put a voice and a face on things. But for us, it was further sort of putting our foot in the water as far as kind of fleshing out ideas. We would get yelled at quite a bit if we didn't agree with people on certain things. And then eventually we came up with the investing edge, which has become solely the razor's edge. And that was, you know, Akram's razor is one of the authors I remember working with from pretty much the beginning in 2012, maybe 2013, we started to email, but very much a pro level author, somebody who's been investing professionally for a couple of decades. And just the level of research he does in his work is very impressive. And so in that show, I'm learning from his instincts quite a lot and learning from his sort of even more than his instincts. I think he invests in a different way than I do his, the research he does and how to go the extra level and not just take what the company is saying or what the market perception or the sell side analysts, like he has gone really deep in a few different directions. And so that's been a lot of fun. And then he's also got a lot of interesting people. You know, I don't remember if I've brought anybody on, but I have a couple of people I might bring on to the show as well. But the guests we've had have given us a, you know, really interesting perspective from private markets, from public markets, from an operational perspective to flesh out what we're doing as investors. And so I think that's been the ability to get to talk to people and, you know, podcasts are great because people just like to talk about what they're doing. So uh, that's been, yeah, it's really helped. Again, I don't know about the results per se, but it's to help get a better sense of what moves, how things work in the market, and hopefully try to nail down some successful ideas. I want to touch on two points that you sort of mentioned. I guess a lot of listeners here in Asia don't know what Seeking Alpha is. So for those who don't know, Seeking Alpha is a crowdsourced content service for financial markets, which contains a multitude of articles and research covering different asset classes and companies. Personally, for me, I use it to sort of validate some of my investment thesis. I kind of want to know about, you know, the bears on a particular company. How has it been helpful for you using a lot of the research thesis from all the other investors out there? Yeah, it's interesting. That's changed for me over time a little bit. But it used to be that if I saw an idea on Seeking Alpha, whether before I worked there or when I worked there, I would think, oh, okay, let me check out that idea. And I would invest, eventually invest in ideas. I like to always do, almost always do my own work and not just 
coattail ride. So that's how I used to use it. I now do use it more for sort of getting a fuller picture of the story and validating to your point. And it's interesting. I, I think people who understand Seeking Alpha do this, but the comment streams especially are good. And they were especially valuable for us as editors too, because somebody can come in and, you know, and one of the biases you have as an editor is that a well-presented argument will stand out better than a brief argument or a messy argument. It's just easier to say, oh yeah, that well-presented argument, it's really got everything you need. We're like that, even if it may not be as good an idea as this, you know, poorly written one or this idea that only has a very kernel of an idea. And so we would try to, that was always a struggle for us. But one of the ways to get around that is to go to the comment stream, because what I think Seeking Alpha offers that there's, there are other sites like Value Investors Club and there's Twitter, of course. I think what Seeking Alpha does a good job of still is there's a mix of people focused on the markets, but then people who are just, let's say, executives at a given company who may just be following their stock and their competitors, and they may just show up and they'll be anonymous, but you'll know that they know what they're talking about. And all of a sudden they'll say, no, you're, you're an idiot, whatever. They'll explain why. And that's where you really, I think, get added value and where you get to meet more people is that there's that mix of people actually in the field with investors. And so there's sort of, that's that's the added value, I think. There's a guy, I can't remember exactly what his handle is, but it, it may just be Walnut Man. And he was like, is an expert on the walnut industry. And back when Diamond Foods was in the, you know, Diamond Foods, I think has since been bought out, but Diamond Foods was this nuts company, nuts and snack food company. And he would just... Whenever he popped up, people were like, oh, all right, like this guy's. And there was like even a couple imposters or like copycats of it, his right. handle and his style. But yeah, so that's just an example of what Seeking Alpha, like you said, is crowdsourced. They it also they also produce news. They produce they produce the filings. They have the financials. So it's really increasingly become investing and in trying to give readers everything they need to know. There are subscription services. That's something I worked on. It's just meant to give, you know, tons of information for both opinions, analysis, and data on any, any U.S. stock or over-the-counter ADR stock. It's, it is very much U.S. focused. So that validation, because you can go for ideas, you can go for validation, you can go, some people will use it to make sure that there's nothing about their idea. So if they have an idea on small cap ticker XYZ, they check to make sure that nobody else has come up with that idea because they worry that if somebody's published on that idea, that it's already in the market, like it's already in the. I appreciate your insight. The other point I want to touch upon is your experience with podcasting, your experience with interviewing so many seasoned investors or senior executives from different industries. What do you learn from them? Are there similar personality traits or even decision-making skills in the way that these leaders make business or investment decisions? On the razor's edge, especially, our approach is not so much, you know, there are podcasts like Invest Like the Best, for example, which really do a good job of getting into the, what were you thinking? Like, how do you come at this? Strategic discussions. I think what we're getting so far, at least, is you get a sense of people for sure, but you also get a sense of what is happening on the ground in a way that is hard to get from a just reading the investing filings 
investment filings or even doing online research, like a sense of the episode that will next come out for us as we record this was with a guy lives in Dubai and has an e-commerce site or e-commerce business, essentially. It's sort of not so far from what Square does. And he's able to give us perspective on partnering with Facebook and what he's seen working, going to Menlo Park and working with Facebook. He's able to give us perspective on changing trends in e-commerce and changing trends in how people are spending money that I think are really interesting. He was able to shed light on, for example, the idea that a lot of service businesses have shifted to, you know, and I guess Dubai is pretty close to reopen by now. People are still used to booking, let's say, a table in a restaurant and paying for it in advance, which I just thought was like a really interesting change in behavior because we've been obsessed with since for almost a year now, since COVID started, what is going to be short term and what is going to be long term change. And it's very easy to have your opinions. Like the streaming companies are very hard, I think, to differentiate. Well, I like that show from I, this is a good investment, right? It's very easy to, I actually, the Peter Lynch style of investing, I to a certain degree distrust because I don't know that I can, not Peter Lynch is great, but I don't know that I believe my experience can be extended at large. And so talking to people in the field, talking to people in general is one way to get out of that because you see more experiences, but to talk to people in the field, you know that they have their biases, but if you can get them to shed light on, here's how we use, we talk to a salesman in the SaaS industry, software as a service industry, and to hear what's selling well for him, what he's excited about, what he's using, like that stuff that is just really valuable to us and then to our listeners as further perspective beyond just what you might hear in the investing community. There's a lot of thesis that could be right or wrong, and I think that's the beauty of investing. And I, I want to get to know more about you as an investor. What does investing mean to you? Why should people still invest in this day and age, given that there's so many uncertainties out there and that there's so much at risk? That's a good question. I mentioned earlier, my wife is an international teacher by profession. She's not in a school right now, but we know a lot of teachers. And so I think and a lot of them are not sophisticated investors. And so occasionally we'll talk. And I always start with the premise of, look, investing is something you do after you've taken care of your credit card debt or after you've taken care of loans, after you have a rainy day fund, after, after you have the basic savings and you start to invest money that you don't need for a few years, is sort of my view. And that's not, we can go into people who talk about being a long-term investor or whatever, but that's just anything can happen in the short term and you want to be able to view those situations dispassionately, right? March, 2020 can happen and your stocks can be cut in half. And if you don't need that money, you don't have to panic necessarily about what could happen next. It may be a time to sell, who knows, right? I mean, it wasn't, but it may be, but you can at least look at it not from the perspective of, oh, I need to pay my bills tomorrow. So that's where I start. 
so you know philosophically investing i don't i don't get too high-minded about it but i think ultimately investing is you're giving people money who who may be able to grow it in the future and generally economies grow generally we are populations grow i mean i know population growth may be slowing around the world but it's generally it tends to be that things over the long term if you look over the past 60s 80 years whatever markets tend to go up if you have patience and if you're conservative about how you approach things you have every chance to grow your money while having a share in the economy and so you know you can invest my brother, for example, doesn't invest in the stock market. He runs a musical instruments business, and so and it started from him buying and selling like fancy musical gear on Craigslist and selling it on eBay or vice versa. And that was sort of where he started. Now he has he actually retails, and it's a very successful e-commerce business, I guess. But he sort of will say, "Look, if I get money, I may as well just invest in my business because he understands it, and that's a very niche." market and he can and he knows how to add value etc and so if you have something like that that's great the stock market is sort of the widest i think widest and easiest entry it's of course entry that can be that comes with risk but that's sort of how i think about it the, the market there are rules it doesn't feel like that in this environment where everything goes up no matter what but there are sort of fundamentals that you can ta- attach things to. And that's when I was starting and even reading again, somebody like Jim Cramer, like charts investing or the stock might go up because it went up. I know we might get into technical analysis, but that was harder for me to understand. Whereas, okay, like a stock hat makes $2 a share. It's trading for 10 times earnings and that its peers trade for 15. So, okay, that's that's a very facile thesis. I'm not saying that that's how I invest per se now, but it becomes easier to understand. So that's how I think of investing more broadly. And then sort of in an investing style, that's where I start to think about, okay, why the stock market? Why? What am I counting on? What are my underlying reasons for being in the stock market and then in the, sh- in the companies that I invest in? We understand that you're focused mostly on value style investing. Could you share more information on that? Do you invest in growth stocks or incorporate like technical analysis to help your investment thesis? Because the reason why I ask is because for someone that's starting off investing, especially millennials, they like to incorporate technical analysis on top of their fundamental research. For example, if they see a stock that went up by 100% and then they look at the RSI, which is the relative strength index, which indicates that the stock is overbought. The stock may not be overbought at an RSI of 70 or above. So it's it's very hard. I think that's the, the problem that a lot of retail investors are, are facing, that a lot of these valuations on companies are not justified, but hard for them to sort of pull the trigger or they pull the trigger too early. So what's your investment philosophy when it comes to value investing? I'll start with the value versus growth and then touch on the technical analysis. I have an easier time buying cheap things, right? Even though I'm blessed to be in a decent state, but I just spending money is always painful for me. And so that sort of principle applied relatively easily to the stock market where I just said, all right, I like lower multiples. 
as we've seen over the last 10 years, growth stocks have done better. And that doesn't mean that they will continue to do better, but it, it forces you to think about that. So I come to, all right, what do I like? I believe in the sort of the basic principles of a Benjamin Graham style that a share is a piece of a business. It's not just it's not just trading sardines that could go up or down. And so I want to understand from a fundamental basis. And I guess I find it easier for me. I'm an optimistic person, but I'm skeptical of my own knowledge. And I'm skeptical of being able to predict things very far in the future. And that leads me to saying, all right, I have a better sense of identifying a mean reversion play, which is essentially value investing, than I do of, of investing in the next great growth story. And so I guess that's, that's sort of how I would simplify it. And I think it's so important investing to know what works for you and your mindset and your style. And so for me, it's just easier. I've tried to incorporate more growth sort of as a fundamental thing when I'm looking for stocks. I, I want to look for companies that are growing revenue, for example, even if it's a low amount, won't always be the case, but I find that's a good threshold as a sign that their business is valuable, that people want to buy their products, et cetera. But yeah, for me, just, I sort of start with, well, let me look for opportunities. I love to look for companies even before the last year, but then I sort of re-emphasize this with COVID. And even now, though interest rates are low and whatever else, I prefer companies that have clean balance sheets without debt as much as possible. Obviously, a financial company is going to be different or whatever, but I try to avoid debt because that gives the company more options. I try to look for companies if they have, if they won't need to raise capital and if they are already generating free cash flow or if they have a pretty clear path to generating free cash flow, like if it's if they're approaching free cash flow, even if it's inflated by share-based compensation, that becomes interesting to me because they're growing and because you can see where they're going to produce good numbers to the point where the multiples become reasonable. And so I guess that's that's how I think, to use an example, a stock that I still have a small position, mostly, I should say, because I Occam's Razor did a lot of good research on it, was um, PagerDuty. And in PagerDuty's case, that's like about as high as I'm willing to pay. And part of the thesis there is, look, all these other stocks are trading at these price-to-sales multiples, and so PagerDuty should be closer. And I, you know, I don't really like price to sales multiples. I like price to free cash flow or, or to earnings. But after the last time they sold off, I kind of did a basic DCF and said, all right, we're expecting this works if you get 20% growth. And Akram has done the work to make the case that it is going to be a steady grower over time. And so, okay, I added to my position that time. And is it working because of that long-term story is it working because everything's going up and they show that they're fine. It's probably more the latter, but nevertheless, that's, that's sort of how I think of price of value versus growth. And in terms of technical analysis, it's just something that I respect it in the sense of, I think there are ways to incorporate it as far as both in terms of things you mentioned, like the RSI or, or patterns or, you know, resistance support, whatever. Cause I think there is, there's both a degree of, well, if everybody is thinking about the same things, then they become self-fulfilling prophecies. But also as a reflection of sentiment, there's also the sort of technical analysis of, oh, there's an 8% holder who has to sell that. They're going to have to sell down their position or whatever. And so there's you sort of take advantage of that. 
it just doesn't make as much sense to me overall. And so I don't spend, and it's not as, I think it's important with it, with, within reason to focus on what's makes sense to you and what's interesting to you. And so it's not as interesting for me as thinking through the probabilities of whether the stock will grow or whatever and the multiples. And so I prefer to focus on the fundamental analysis more, more from that perspective. One thing I've, and I wrote about this, I just wrote a letter for the family members I manage money for and then posted this as an article on Alpha. I do think it's interesting, the idea of narratives as driving factors. The day that Twitter announced that, or that news leaked that Twitter was looking for a developer to work on a subscription product, you knew that the story was going to change really quickly. I ended up only day trading and it made, you know, a few bucks, but that was Twitter was at 35 then and it's at or you know, I bought it 34 or so. And that was already after jumping that day and it now it's at 50. So that's something that I should have should pay more attention to because I understand stories and I've seen a lot as Alpha. I, my big miss last year was not investing in Spotify when Joe Rogan signed a deal with them because I could tell that their strategy made sense from that moment. Now, okay, exclusive on Spotify, like all of a sudden, even if that's, I don't know if they'll make their money back from that per se, they have in the stock price, but that just made sense in a way that their other acquisitions hadn't really made such clear strategic sense. I could recognize that, the stock market could recognize that, the stock jumped 15 or 16 bucks and it was at around 175, but it's at 320 now, whatever. So that's an example. So that to me, more than technicals, is something that I'm trying to balance. It's also sort of a bubbly market. So it's a little dangerous to change what you're doing just because everybody's chasing performance. But yeah, that, so that's, I guess, how I think about strategy and approach to the market. Thanks for your insight on that. I think a lot of listeners we're able to get a better understanding of, of your investment philosophy. You talk about bubbly market. What's your current overall take on the stock market in the new year? Do you have any concerns with how the market is performing? Very concerned, I guess, is the problem because I don't, it seems to keep going up and it doesn't seem like it should. I mean, no, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a huge macro guy. I think you step away from this, the bubble of, in the sense of the people who are following the market closely and the world seems to be in a tougher place than it was a year, a year ago. And so it doesn't make sense that the stock market would be as strong as it's been. I understand with the, with the fed and everything else, what I look at actually even more than all the tech companies that are, there's electric vehicles as sort of a bubble and SPACs is a sign of there's a lot of money going into companies that are probably shouldn't be on the public market. And so there are, those sorts of things that I would argue are quite risky and quite irrational, right? Little sectors of the market. But, and then there's tech companies, the, the SaaS companies, the Zooms of the world, which are trading at, which are great companies, but are also trading at crazy multiples where is Zoom going to have as strong a year in 2022 as it did growth-wise as it did in 2020? There's almost no way, right? So that's a concern. But I think even more than that, I look at the Russell 2000 outperformed the S&P 500 last year, meaning small caps really did well, which just as a small cap investor, it's very weird when your index is doing well. It just hasn't happened very much 
in the last decade, but also like booking.com, which I own a position in. It's just had a terrible year. I mean, it's still going to be profitable, I think, in 2020 because it's a great company, but 2021 is still not going to be a normal year. In 2022, you may have more travel than normal because people are excited to be back out of their homes. But like, if you just do the free cash flow analysis, it's hard to understand how booking is trading. Like the recovery plays is what I'm saying are already well above where they were in a lot of cases. And so that's where I look and I say, well, that to me doesn't make sense. Am I worried about it? It, it seems like this can't go on forever. At the same time, it could go on for a long time and you miss out. I tend to keep a lot of cash in my portfolio or ca- you know, short-term bond ETFs, and I'm at, still at something like 33%, which to me is too high generally. I prefer to be at 20 to 25%. So I'm still adding where I find value. And I think there are still values in the market available. But I'm skeptical of the market's levels, but I've also been skeptical of the market's levels since about 2015. So my skepticism maybe is healthy to have. You know, you got to keep everything in moderation. So I wasn't paying attention to the market in financial crisis. So I don't, I've only had a decade, but it was definitely a very strange year. And it's a strange environment for us, even through the first week of 2020. I want to talk about another company that that you own, a company that you and I have a position in, and sort of your take on the cloud storage sector, Dropbox. So Dropbox was founded in 2007 and IPO'd in 2018 as a file sharing service company where you can pretty much access your files anywhere as long as you have internet connection. The CEO is Drew Houston, by the way, turned down Steve Jobs when Apple wanted to acquire Dropbox back in 2009. And he's actually currently one of the board of directors of Facebook. Where do you see value in, in this company? And what made you sort of want it to take a position in this company? We've spent so much time on the razor's edge talking about SaaS. I mentioned PagerDuty earlier. We talked a lot about Slack. We talked a lot about Zoom, etc. And it's a very hot sector. And Dropbox is one of the original SaaS companies. The original provide their software to you, not not even. Th- I mean, they have an application now, but it's really not about CD-ROMs or anything else. It's all delivered over the internet. And it's as I was kind of looking at it and hearing from, I, I saw some good ideas, good theses from value investors. I saw good theses from tech-oriented investors. And I think Dropbox is sort of in between camps right now, which is what makes it an opportunity. It's a company that is still trading below its IPO price. And, you know, as I'm looking at it, it's a $9 billion company, more or less, market cap. And it generates cash. So it's already profitable on cash basis, even when you account for, which I think both are in some form worth accounting for, share-based compensation and they pay uh they have these finance leases that they that come out of their cash flow from financing activities instead of operations. So even if you account for that, they're still producing a decent amount of cash. They weren't necessarily a COVID play. You know, I think it, it probably forced people to use a cloud storage service more, but it wasn't like a huge, it wasn't like Zoom or a few other softwares that you absolutely had to have in the last year. 
but it's a company that, you know, the, the stock spiked almost a year ago when they gave their targets for 2024, I think it was. And they said, we're still going to be a 10% revenue grower, but we're going to have a billion dollars of free cash flow. When you do the math, again, I actually don't get there. In my model, I actually have them at about $500 million in free cash flow as of 2024. That's, that's factoring in share-based compensation and or factoring out, I guess, share-based compensation and the finance lease. They're not a HP or something, right? They're not trading at a six-time EV EBITDA multiple. So they're not a value play where you're just hoping that they just eke out a little bit of growth. They're still growing at 10 to 12% or something, which is very healthy, right? It's a very good, and it's what's that a sign of? It's a sign of they're adding new users, and obviously they have, so getting into the sort of the, the business analysis, the number everybody throws around is 600 million people use Dropbox, but only 15 million pay. And frankly, not a lot of people are going to pay because you can get free storage from your Gmail, your Google Drive, or you can get it from Microsoft, et cetera. There's a lot of people who are more casual. But if you're doing, I've, I became a Dropbox user because part I was interested using the stock, but also when I left Seeking Alpha and started my podcast company, like to share files, if I'm editing for somebody and I want to share files or whatever, it's really, that's a lot of storage. And it's just, Google is actually a bit of a pain, I think, as far as sharing files. Like you could pay for Google, but I feel like their permissions are more clunky. So I think Dropbox actually has a good product there and they have pricing power. You're not going to leave Dropbox because it's, once you've kind of set up your file somewhere, it's a pain to move them around, right? It's the same. I've got a, a hard disk drives that I can attach to the computer, but even that I like hate to use because it's just like you got to plug it in, you got to dig around. And so Dropbox facilitates a lot of that. It doesn't see a lot of churn. They raised their prices, I think, in 2019, and ASP went up from, I don't know, 115 or so to 125. And they didn't see a lot of churn. And so I think that's a really nice position for them. And if they're already producing free cash flow as is, and their multiple isn't crazy, like you just kind of, you do the math from there and it makes sense. And of course, there's also the Steve Jobs famously said that Dropbox isn't a product, it's a feature. There is the potential, Slack was sort of the first big acquisition in this consumer uh, SaaS space, Dropbox is an obvious target. And news speculation of that came out in the end of December, and all of a sudden the stock like jumped three bucks for speculation. I actually, just because I thought it was you know funny and a little weird, I sold a few shares above twenty five, and then just bought them back on the first day of the year at twenty two. If all goes wrong, they've got a lot of cash, and maybe Drew, I've read that, you know, maybe Drew Houston is not super excited, thought his company was going to be a bigger deal than it is, and maybe he's not inspired. So fine, he sells the company at a little bit cheaper than he should. It's sort of your risk case to me, I think. I, I don't see how else they're going to really do poorly, and, you know, and they don't need to grow a lot more for them to actually be a value multiple. And then it just seems like if they do hit their targets, it's easily in the 30s. And an acquisition would obviously accelerate on that. So it just seems to me like when you think about the downside, it doesn't look, it's hard to see it getting much worse And from a business operational perspective. And so then 
you do the math and it seems like there's reasons to think that the narrative, the upside, they could do a huge share buyback or whatever. Like they have, they have flexibility. And so that's, and I haven't even talked about maybe hello sign becomes a growth story or something. Who knows? But that's, that's sort of how I'm looking at it. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts or what do you think? Before I, I give my thoughts, I was curious to know, what do you think the risks or challenges are for Dropbox that sort of goes against your bull thesis? 15 million paid users is not a huge base. And by the way, I, I didn't review the latest numbers. I could be off on the exact details, but like, it's not a huge base. And so you worry, well, will people just, Microsoft is such a attractive enterprise competitor. Will people just opt for the, I mean, that's what happened to Slack, right? Is that Teams was available for free. And so that kind of blunted a little bit of Slack's growth, but even more the narrative around Slack, people were just worried that Teams would be there. That's a big part of why Slack said, let's go, let's sell the Salesforce and have a subscription suite that we can belong to. And so Dropbox being just a feature, if we call it that, like, is it going to be able to hold on to its turf versus these more integrated product suites? That's, I think, probably the biggest risk. Again, I don't know, spoken to anybody at Dropbox. I don't have, but I've read a few expert call transcripts since a question of, all right, is he in this, does he have a vision that will really get them anywhere? I feel like they've tried a few different products. I really like Dropbox Paper. Dropbox Passwords to me, I don't really get what it's doing. Hello Sign, I in principle, I guess, could compete with DocuSign, but there hasn't been a clear sign that it has yet. Do they have anything else that will get them beyond their core product? And it, if they don't, is their core product going to still, amidst the competition, grow enough to hold on to their turf and turn it into a value? I guess that's your question. I I think those will be the risks is that, that the competition eats away at their core product, either at the growth or at actual active users currently, and that they don't find anything else new. And if the market does correct and all of a sudden Zoom is trading at 15 times price to sales instead of whatever it is, like all of a sudden does its multiple compress as well because it's lumped into that category. I agree. I agree to some of the risks that, that you've mentioned. I personally like Dropbox mainly because it's got a quite a solid balance sheet. I would say 80% of the subscribers are using Dropbox for business. So if you think that Dropbox is actually for personal, that's not true. It's actually more for you know, corporate business. What is important is whether they can, you know, convert a lot of their sales to business and into their more upgraded or expensive business offerings. I like their their integration partners that they're working with. Like as you mentioned, they've they've acquired HelloSign in two thousand nine. They integrate with Adobe, Zoom, Slack, Salesforce, Microsoft, Google. They have a lot of universities that are using Dropbox. I, I know that University of Michigan uh, is, is using it. They have 1 million registered developers. So I think it's a very in intriguing company. The stock price, I would say, has fallen over the past year for the wrong reasons. For example, given that Dropbox just recently hired a new a CFO, we saw when Ajay Vashi leaving back in August, I think there was a lot of panic in terms of the trajectory from a financial perspective of how the, the company will perform. And there was a sell-off at that price. And I thought, given that Dropbox was able to beat earnings, 
and sales estimates in Q2, they reported an EPS of 0.26 versus the forecasted 0.19. I do think that at that point, the value of the company was underappreciated. And that's when I sort of got in and took a small position. For me, the risk of a Dropbox is less so of you know competition. I mean, their direct competitor, would I would say, is, is Box or even as far as Google Drive and Amazon Drive. But I think there is also that, that risk with data theft and security leading to government intervention. But I think that's applicable to every tech company out there that's storing data. So I think there's a lot of concerns, but I think definitely seeing a, a larger upside, you know, it's almost contradicting to my, my final conclusion of what I'm going to say about the Dropbox is, you know, I have questions of Mark in terms of the exit strategy. I think there's a lot of speculations with Dropbox being an acquisition target. You know, there's rumors with, you know, Oracle being interested to buy Dropbox to have that additional cloud component for Oracle's business. But for retail investors like me, I think I'm worried that I can't build a position if it gets acquired after me starting a small position in the company. I think that's something that I'm cautious of. I think there needs to be more clarity in terms of what Dropbox's exit strategy will be. I think in terms of building the position, that's a sort of personal preference as far as how quickly you want to build or whatever. A couple other interesting things I think to keep in mind here. One that's sort of trivial, like some across, I was trying to look at the number, but Dropbox has a relationship with Zoom and integration. And as part of the integration, they own something like, I did the math and I, I tweeted it, but something like 140,000 shares in Zoom on their, and you'll see they report that as other income. And so I, for once this quarter, that'll be other, that'll be an other expense rather than income since Zoom fell off in Q4. So yeah, they have those integrations. They're considered sort of that Switzerland where they can go with, they integrate with almost anything, which is a useful feature. It's interesting exit strategy because we think about that usually with private companies, right? Private companies, how are they going to exit? Are they going to go public or are they going to get sold? And I guess that's part of that's part of the opportunity for Dropbox is that in theory, an exit strategy for them could be to become this cash cow and just to produce, if they do get to a billion in free cash flow the way they measure it by 2024, like they trade it, as we said, nine, $9.3 billion, I think, is the market cap, and they have over a billion dollars net cash. So we're talking about eight times EV to free cash flow for a growing company. You don't need to exit at that point if you're successful. But all the competitive risks and everything else, like there's reason to be skeptical of that, but I think that's where they're in that in-between. I think they're still associated with SaaS and with they'll trade as sort of a beta against a Zoom or whatever. But if they get to that point, then they're actually more like an old tech company, except with double digit or even high single digit revenue growth. Like that's uh that's really attractive. And so I think that's yeah, that, that point about exit strategy is interesting. And I think there's a sign of why there could still be an opportunity. My average price for my holding is probably 20 and a half to $21, but I did add some shares at 22 last week. And there aren't so many moving pieces that you have to follow. So it makes it easy to, easier to follow in your portfolio. I agree. I, I appreciate your transparency. I think there's a lot of potential with Dropbox in particular. Let me change the topic going back to sort of your investment 
experience. What are some of your biggest investing mistakes or learnings that you could share with our listeners here in Asia? There are a lot of mistakes at least. We'll see how much the learnings are there. One thing I could see at Seeking Alpha and that I should have been more proactive about avoiding, that you can see when there becomes a hive around a given stock, where there becomes a real like niche stock that everybody loves. For example, with yield stocks, right? There's a big dividend investing community. And yield is always feels attractive, right? You're going to get a dividend. And if the dividend holds up, like that's, and some of these are high dividend stocks. You're talking about six, seven, 8% return just out the get-go before you have a multiple evaluation. And the analysis sort of stops a little bit there. And so an example for me was I owned shares in Washington Prime Group. And I owned it originally. It was a spinoff from Simon Property Group. I liked spinoffs. Of course, I've read Joel Greenblatt's book and spinoff sounded good. There was a good idea on Seeking Alpha. It was not yet in that yield category. It was a dollar dividend and I bought shares originally at about 15 bucks a share. So you can do the math, six to 7% dividend, like not this sort of yield pig sort of story. But as the shares continue to go down and I didn't do enough thought about, oh, malls and not high quality malls, maybe that's not the best place to be invested in. And I just held shares for too long. I got out before 30% or 40% loss or something. But like it's something where I saw the community rising. And sometimes you'll see a community and you'll be like, all right, all right, they're probably the ones who know what they're talking about. But sometimes you can see, oh, this is, there's a lot of people investing on the surface. And that's a problem because then when the underlying results go wrong, that will be a mistake. Another example was Unity Group. UNIT is, is the ticker. They were originally communication sales and leasing. They were spinoff from Windstream, a small telecom company. And small telecoms have done nicely for me. I think that's an example of not a lot of growth, but they're usually cheap. And if you get the right story with just a little growth, it'll work out. I never invested in Windstream, but there was this spinoff. And I looked at it and I actually did the right analysis of like, well, Windstream owns 20% of the company and they're going to want to sell that. So that means the share price probably won't hold up very well. And so I stayed away. Then I remember I was on vacation and I looked, I was just looking these telecom stocks and I looked at Unity again. And I was like, oh, okay, like that's actually, it looks pretty attractive. And so I opened a position and then there was a lawsuit that a hedge fund had filed against Windstream, basically saying that the spinoff violated their covenants on their debt. And I had no idea of how to price that or anything. And meanwhile, Unity, I had kind of added to it a lot over the years and it had risen back up to the, I think the low 20s. And I was at least at break even, if not a little above, and it was easily my biggest position. And there's a binary risk that you don't know how to price that should probably not be your biggest position. And again, I was on vacation and I woke up and it was over a long weekend and I saw the news and I was like, oh, oh no, like I'm going to wake up. And it was a huge loss. I, what I did well there was cut my losses pretty quickly. And I, I, I think shares are still at or below where I sold them. So I did well to end that without drawing out the pain. But those are a couple of mistakes I've made on the commission side. I probably own too many stocks. As I said earlier, I'm skeptical about how much I know as compared to the market. I think my strength is in being disciplined. 
And so if I get those sorts of green balance sheet stories where there's some growth and I don't have to spend all day thinking about them, I think they'll work out over the long haul, even if I miss the big moves. But I'm at something like 24 US stocks and four European stocks for a friend in a European account. It's probably a little higher than it should be still. I've cut it down. What that led to is, for example, in 2020, I ended up just as I wanted to cut back, I ended up selling a few stocks. Garrett Motion was a clear mistake. It was a spinoff from Honeywell that I sort of was doing analysis on spinoffs. I was like, oh, this would be attractive if it got down to this price. And it did. And I ignored the fact that it had a terrible balance sheet, which was imposed on it by Honeywell. And that's also in litigation now. And it may be a special situation, but I shouldn't have invested. But then there are other stocks where I just didn't understand them well enough. And probably I just thought, oh, they're cheap. And they fit certain patterns I like fundamentally, and I probably should have not gotten involved and I ended up losing money because of the dynamics of last year. Well, I already mentioned the last one, which was the Spotify one, which is sometimes being so skeptical of my own knowledge may hurt me because I miss out on an opportunity that seems like a clear one. And anchoring bias is really hard for me. I really struggle with, well, I opened the position here, and so... That's, I only want to add if it goes lower or whatever. And so with Spotify, I was this close to adding when it bottomed. I've like, if it ever had hit $100 a share, I would have had a Spotify position. It got sort of close to that. So that also harmed me because I was like, oh, but now it's already 175 and I've not finished my analysis. And sometimes you just have to pull the trigger and jump in. So that's something I'm trying to work. So converting your mistakes to learnings, is there a like sort of like a fundamental rule that, that you sort of go by when you look at companies, analyze financial statement of, of a company? The, the reason I ask is because sometimes there's too much information out there that sort of sways your you know, investment thesis or investment idea that might prevent you from investing in a company. I was just wondering, like, what are your thoughts on that? One decent rule is don't be on Twitter, for example. I mean, for example, Twitter is, and I'm on it all, all day and really trying to work on that, but it's very good for analysis of ideas, I think. Like you will, if you know where to look, and the same with Seeking Alpha, if you're looking for stuff on an idea, that sort of stuff is great. But I think behaviorally, I get frustrated with Twitter with how many people are so-called long-term investors who tweet about their stock price on a given day as if it matters. Like if you're a long-term investor, okay, if there's an acquisition or if there's a great earnings, fine. But if it's just the stocks moving up, like why are you talking? I, I never understand that. And I think there's it creates a little bit of pressure and that is unhealthy. Whereas, yeah, the whole Warren Buffett invest as if the stock market would be closed for the next five years. Like I think there's something to be said for that. Shutting out price information to a certain degree is actually healthier than not. And Ironically, my European account, it's an interactive broker's account. And my friend, it goes through her phone. So every time I actually want to log in, I have to coordinate with her. She's now in another country. It's not trivial to actually log in. Those stocks have done really well. And I think partly it's because I couldn't cancel a buy order when the sell-off started to happen last February. And I didn't bother to sell anything, et cetera. And so being able to sit in a quiet room and do nothing, I think Pascal is who said that. And I think Seth Klarman makes reference to that sort of thing. 
I think that's valuable and not worrying about keeping up with the market per se or whatever else, figuring out what works for you. We talk about things like margin of safety or a catalyst or what's your edge or what you know the market doesn't. And I think those are all those are all opinions ultimately, right? A margin of safety is basically how likely is it that you're wrong and what happens if you're wrong? You can kind of think through it, but you could just be wrong about, you could be wrong about your margin of safety and then it's useless. You can get safe growing companies and then it's a matter of the multiples compressing, but I think it's just balancing your risks and balancing what makes you comfortable so that you don't suddenly change your plan drastically because of outside circumstances. And that comes back to what I said at the top of you should be investing money that you don't need in the next year or two and that or three. And that gives you over three year periods. There have been bad bear markets, but we're generally going to have opportunities. And so that's how I would think about it. I think there's some analytical things, but I think the behavioral things are even more important as far as matching your investing style to your behavior, trying to tune out things that will give you negative impulse because investing, if you're investing for the long term and not trading, which I'm not trying to say that as judge. If you want to trade, that's fine. But if you're investing for a real long term, then every day the, there's a lot of noise coming at you and being comfortable tuning that out. Maybe that's that you give yourself a small portion of your portfolio to just play around with just so that you get out that in short-term instinct. But yeah, that's sort of how I would think about it. Daniel, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. I think Listeners here in Asia has learned so much about you as well as your investment philosophy. I want to use this time and before we conclude this episode, I'm sure my listeners would be interested to hear how they can reach out to you or, or listen to your podcasts. Can you share more information on this to our listeners around the world? I'm available on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman, which is a nickname I got in college. I'm quite short. And also, it sounds like my last name, which is not an easy name to spell or pronounce for a lot of people. So uh, at Daniel Shortman, I have a website called shortmanstudios.com and also at Shortman Studios on Twitter. Our podcast is called The Razor's Edge. Publish new episodes every Tuesday, most weeks. There's We've missed a couple of weeks over the past year, but we've got a lot of exciting things to come. We've got a lot of interesting guests and we've got some we need to do some episodes between just the two of us. You can find at Akram's Razor if you want to follow him. He's more active and entertaining on Twitter, I would argue. But yeah, I'm always happy to hear from people. I have an account on Seeking Alpha. I've been right. We post our podcast there, but I've also been doing some writing there, sharing some ideas. I've had some decent luck with the ideas I've shared on there so far, stock market wise, though, again, everybody's too lucky in this market, it seems so. And so those are all ways to get in touch with me. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, Daniel Schwarzman. I've been to the Middle East, but I've only been to East Asia once and I was in eighth grade. I went on a trip to Japan. And so it's something when we get traveling again, it's on my agenda to get over there again because it's a fascinating part of the world and obviously a leading part of the world increasingly. Yeah, I would love to have you over here in Asia. Definitely would love to take you around. Hopefully COVID subsides. And the conversations that we have today was super insightful. There's so much to learn. Really appreciate the insights that my guest has, has brought to the table. Just for disclaimer purposes, besides Dropbox, and I know we mentioned Booking.com and PagerDuty, do you own any other company stocks uh, mentioned in this podcast? Those are the three that I have positions in. So thank you for 
remembering that. But yeah, booking, page duty, then Dropbox, which is a bigger position. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nana. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisors. If you like this podcast, please follow us at our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath for new updates to our next episode.